everyone. I missed all of you last week, so I'm happy to be here this morning. <clears throat> and today, we are going to pick up um, our series that we've been doing together with key Davidic Psalms. I say that pretty much every time I come up here, so I'm sure you're aware. But we've been doing a series on particular Psalms in the Old Testament written by King David, but more specifically, Psalms that David has linked to key moments in his life. Um, And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 51. Now, as you may recall, up until this point with our time together, I know Pastor John has been preaching on some of 1 Samuel, which is part of David's life. David has kind of been the hero of the story. He's been the hero of the book of 1 Samuel. He's been the hero in the Psalms that we Um, been looking at the underdog and and just kind of this hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-
He's, he's the guy that everyone looks up to. He's the king. He's God's chosen. But, but again, David is going to be shaken by his situation. Um, and while this psalm has been likely to have been written in the corner of a palace, instead of the corner of a cave, the feelings of despair and grief and fear that moved him to write the psalms that we've looked at in the past, they find him again when he's confronted with his sin regarding Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. And one thing that just continues to fascinate me as we look at these psalms is that they're there. I mean, these are private reflections of intimate, deep anguish of the author. And he makes them public. Would you publicize your journals and your feelings and your diaries and and your sins? For the whole nation to know. And the question that I, I want us to keep in mind as we study this psalm together this morning is what is David attempting to tell his people by making this particular reflection public? Because he doesn't write it and then say, you know, send it to the printer. I'm sure he, he made this into the culture of Israel. He gives it to the choir master so they can start singing this psalm after it's happened. So he's, he's in his right mind, he's sober-minded, and he's choosing to do this. And the question is, why? And that's what we're going to be looking at. Today's account comes from when David is confronted, as Philip had read for us, um, in his royal court by Nathan the prophet of his sin. And he unknowingly condemns himself of his crime against God. And in the heat of the moment, under the crushing conviction of God, all he can say and all he can mutter and all he can uh, come out of his mouth is, I have sinned against the Lord. And, I, and think of this, though. David is a warrior king. He's composing himself. And we, we know that because when we read the psalm, it's a whole different tone of, tone of voice. He's composing himself. As he receives this harsh judgment from God through the prophet Nathan, God has put away your sin. You won't die, but the child will. Evil's going to rise up out of your house. And your wives will be taken and given to your neighbor. So in David's solitude, we see his genuine, uncensored, passionate anguish just being poured out in this psalm. And like many times before, it is in David's anguishing cries that we come to learn many precious truths. These truths embedded in this psalm penned at a low, broken-hearted point in David's life shares what he wanted to his people, and us, because it's recorded in Scripture, to learn. And he shares the needs we have of God and the importance to always keep them in the forefront of our minds and of our lives. So let's put this song of the brokenhearted before us. And it's going to be found in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Here's David's reflection here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This psalm, I would imagine, is not one that he simply wrote, said once, and put it away. This psalm, this reflection, this prayer, this cry, is one that he repeated many, 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 many times. Over and over and over again. This is not for show. This is his heart. This is his soul being broken. This is his despair. David would not die of his his sin. At least not in the spiritual sense. He eventually dies, but he won't die. What is then then highlighted in in the, in the, the lines of this psalm? It's the cry and the desire of the forgiven sinner. It reminds us, as it did David, that we are truly an enigma. We are mysterious and puzzling the forgiven sinner, the one who knows sin, who is guilty of it, yet forgiven of God for the sake of the glory of Christ. And what David shares for us in his first reflection is the need for cleansing. The need for cleansing. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Again, these psalms that David reflect are his thoughts and his feelings. And it is safe to say that David, through this process, has been utterly 
humiliated, utterly humiliated, humiliated. But through his humiliation and despair, he cries out for God's mercy. He desperately desires the cleansing hand of God in his life. And the reason is David is bombarded with a particular truth. And one of them is the truth of pervasive sin. The truth of pervasive sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. They're ever before me. And against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David vindicates God's judgment upon him. He says, yeah, the judgment is good. The judgment is right. Absolutely. I I just got a beating. But it's it's right and it's good and it's it's true. Because according to God's law, which David knew, David was given at least, at least two death sentences. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely be put to death. Numbers 35, 31. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom, no bail bonds, nothing for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. That's the sentence. Death. He shall be put to death. There's no bulls or sacrifices to say I'm sorry. There's no atonement for these sins. The sentence of death was to be carried out. But by saying, verse 4, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, David tells all Israel, God is justified because I'm supposed to die. I'm supposed to die. He is blameless in his judgment upon me and those affected. And why? Because David recognized what he might have suppressed before. And that sin is never isolated, and it spreads. It spreads. It's never in in a vacuum. It may primarily affect you, but it never only affects you, whether you see the effects of it or not. We need to be cleansed by God because sin never leaves us. It is forever before us. I know my transgressions. I know them. My sin is ever before me. I can't get it out of my head, Lord. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me everywhere I look. It's there. It's there. It's there. Have mercy. And the point here is that our sin, or lack thereof, becomes a part of our identity. The sin David committed, while he was forgiven, he was forgiven, it never leaves him. 1 Kings 15, 4 and 5, the book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, is kind of like a history book, if you will, of the history of Israel. And this is how they remember David. 1 Kings 15, 4 and 5. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp to in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him. This is speaking to the king at the time. And establishing Jerusalem. Now here's the key point here. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. It becomes his subtitle. It doesn't leave him. Matthew 1.6, the genealogy of Christ, something that should be so honored. 
and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There it is again. David's sin becomes a part of his identity and his unique redemptive story. And we see the same example in other places. Not only David, Judas is known for his betrayal in Matthew 26, 25. There's others. Judas, who would betray him, right? His sin becomes part of his identity. Answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Paul is known for his zealous persecution of the church. Galatians 1.13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Doesn't go away. Hebrews 4.15, and this is regarding Christ and his sinlessness, right? He's known for that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And there's multiple, there's multiple ones. I'm just picking three of them. David, and it's likely unknowingly he did this. You know, it's part of the culture. It's the way God kind of designed and created his, his attitude and his temperament and his style and his language, right? David probably unknowingly requests God to blot out his transgressions. Blot them out. Why not erase it? A blot is messy. You ever seen a blot on a piece of paper? Little psychiatrists use it and there's a butterfly in there. So it's messy. Why do you want it to be blotted out? Use a magic eraser or something. No, he wants it blotted out so that when God picks up his file, it's dripping wet. It's messy. It's gross. There's two things that are going to happen. He's going to pick it up and say, you're a mess. Look at all this blotting that had to be done for you. And the second thing is he's going to be blameless. Why? Because the sin cannot be read when it is covered in the blood of Christ. What is so glorious about God's redemption is that the, the, the sins, the disgusting, ugly things we do against God and one another become the foundation, the premise, the starting point of our most profound praise. The best thing that we can do, which is profoundly and perfectly worship God, the starting point is the ugliest thing we can do, which is rebel and sin against such a perfect creator. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is so beautiful. Chosen, royal, holy, we're owned by God. Why? That you may proclaim, so that's you saying or doing something, you're proclaiming something. Proclaiming what? The excellencies of him. So we're proclaimed, we're, we're, we're chosen, we're a royal priesthood, we're, we're given all these wonderful you know, things by God for the purpose of us proclaiming his excellencies of him, who's him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, that's God, it's Jesus called us out of darkness, into his marvelous light, so that we can proclaim excellencies of him. Okay? So, how are we going to proclaim excellencies if we erase the whole history of sin? You can't. Sin is the reason he's excellent. Because he came and conquered it and died and resurrected, and then he, he saves ugly, 
hatred-filled sinners. It's because of that that we are able to do something that is so marvelous and is glorifying God. The work of Christ, the calling out of darkness, does not erase the truth that we were in darkness and sinners, but embraces it. It embraces it and then uses it as a catapult for our magnifying Christ. Christ allows us to become new in him, not in ourselves, but in him. And embrace what shamed us and shamed God and let Christ's victory be our highest position, our highest goal, our highest accomplishment, that we can praise God in a way that even perfect angels can. So David shares with us not only the need for cleansing because of pervasive sin, but also because of inborn sin. Because of inborn sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born in sin. We're brought forth. We are born into this world in iniquity. Even the sin, my mother conceiving me, the first milliseconds of time where I'm one little cell, I'm still brought forth in sin, which is drenched in it. And and what's so fascinating about this is David, by bringing attention to this inborn corruption, is intensifying his guilt. He's intensifying his guilt. He's not saying, hey, I have inborn corruption. I'm born this way, so you can't judge me. You, you, You can't be so hard on me, God. No, he's intensifying. He's like, God, you're so right. And not only that, I was like this from the beginning. I'm just naturally evil. Why does he do that? Why? I mean, he's making a worse case for himself. Why does he do that? Because this is the point. David knows that the sin was too easy. He enjoyed the sin. He enjoyed Bathsheba. He enjoyed his neighbor's wife. And as a convicted sinner, that is terrifying. That is terrifying that we would enjoy sin knowing God. Because we know how God feels about sin. You know what sin does. And you know how horrendously destructive it is. I don't want to like sin. David is saying, God, look, if you don't step in, I will sin again. My inborn corruption tells me that I am going to sin again. I will do more evil. I don't want to, but I will. I know I will. I'm born this way. Please, God, have mercy on me. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, wash me thoroughly and cleanse me. Have me sin no more, because if you don't clean me, I will do it again and again and again. His son had a thousand women. When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, he gave a truth that is applicable to all those who resist the gospel. It's recorded in John 8, 43 and 44. Jesus speaking. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear, you can't even bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will, the things that move you, is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, 
inborn corruption for us. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's also why we get John 3, 20 and 21. One of my favorite verses. For everyone who does wicked things, hates light, hates goodness, hates godliness, hates holiness, and does not come to the light, lest their works be exposed. You come to the light, you're going to see how ugly you are. It's bad. But whoever does what is true, whoever does what is good and godly and holy, comes to the light, comes to that exposure. Why? So that it may be clearly seen, without any shadow of doubt, that his works, his goodness, his holiness, what he's doing, is being carried out in God. That God's doing it. That God's doing it. David recognizes and shares with his people, part of the reason he's making this public, is the severity of the sinful condition. And that we should all partake in the desire of needing to be cleansed by God. We should. We should. And if you don't, you should be terrified like David was. Terrified. The second need that David shares is the need for restoration. The need for restoration. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me, away, cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. One must ask, David, why are you even writing this? I mean, you're forgiven, right? Remember what Nathan said? The Lord has put away your sin, okay? Why ask for cleansing and restoration and go through all this heartache? You got what you needed, right? You got forgiveness. That's not it, right? That's not what he wants. Which is why the other truth that David shares with us is the insufficiency of forgiveness. The insufficiency of forgiveness. David makes several requests in these verses. Let me hear joy. Let my broken bones rejoice. Don't look at my sins. Create a clean heart, meaning make me a new one. Don't just polish this one. I need a brand new one. This one's no good. Don't cast me away. Don't remove your Holy Spirit. Restore the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing, willing spirit. Forgiveness is a means to get what we truly desire. Flourishing fellowship. Give you an example. Let's say I wake up one morning. I'm stumbling to the restroom to take a shower and get ready, and my wife left something on the floor, and I step on it, and it's unpleasant, and I see her, and I say something that's not so nice, and one of those those mornings, right? I completely ruin the morning, clearly. And I I hate that. That is one thing I do not like. I do not like being out of fellowship with my wife. Because I can just physically almost see a manifesting block of ice on her shoulder as she's just walking around. And I know that's my fault. I don't like it. So what has to happen? Jerry needs to ask for forgiveness. So what if she just says, okay, sure, sure, you're forgiven. 
Am I going to go through my day happy? I'm forgiven. Everything's fine. No, absolutely not, because that's not what I want. I want her to turn around, smile, hug me, call me cranky if she wants, and the fellowship to be restored and flourish, and there be love and joy and happiness in one another. It's not good enough for my conscience to be clear. That's what we want. And the point of forgiveness is the restoration of the relationship. Otherwise, who cares? 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ dying, being resurrected, being whipped, being spit on, carrying the wrath of God. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, rubbing it even more. Somebody so righteous, going through all that for the unrighteous. Okay? Why? That he might bring us to God. It doesn't say that we might be forgiven. It's that we may be brought to God. Forgiveness is the train, if you will, that takes us to God. Romans 5.11. More than that, we also rejoice in God. He brings us to God so we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need him because otherwise, remember David's sinful heart? There's no way. We like sin too much. We need to do it through Jesus Christ. One, only one way. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All that work that Jesus did, all that sacrifice that Jesus did, was so that we may be brought to God, and we may rejoice in God, and we may have that fellowship and that relationship restored. It is not about escaping hell, and it is not about being forgiven. While those things are true, it's not the goal. David just doesn't want God to uphold him. What does he say? He wants him to uphold him with a willing spirit. Willing spirit. He doesn't want to be, I don't want to be ashamed, Lord. Hey, who's that? Oh, it's David, my son. Oh, that's the guy that did the thing and, the, and all that, right? Yeah. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want that. I, w- I don't want to be your disgraceful child that troubles you and grieves you. I want to be a delight to you, Lord. I need your restoration in order to do that, in order to be that. He wants the Lord to, to respond in a good way, a willing way. Now, this is my son, David. I'm so proud because he always desires and tries to honor me. And in order for that to happen, God, you need to make me new. You need to clean me, and you need to restore me. I can't do anything. You need to do it. This is why Jesus says in in John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. you got to be born again. You can't be your old self. You got to be renewed. You got to be changed. You got to have a new heart restored by God. That's why, if you're not, all you have is the judgment of God. You will die. John 3 36. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life, right? They're cleansed and restored. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's judgment. Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You need Christ to avoid judgment. But again, the beauty of it is, is judgment's not, avoiding judgment is not the goal. It's 
being brought to God, to enjoy God, to rejoice in God. And we should all desire this, either for the first time for reconciliation with God or as believers to be renewed with God. And we know from Scripture that David continually seeks this throughout his life. Psalm 26.2, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Psalm 86.11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 119.37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Psalm 19.14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Constantly checking himself. Constantly telling the Lord, Lord, am I doing okay? I need, I, need, I need a clean slate today again. The second truth that David shares in regards to the need of restoration is the identity of our disease. The identity of our disease. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, it, it's really... I don't want to say shocking, but interesting and revealing about this psalm that it says nothing about sexual sin, deceit, murder, which are all the sins that David was convicted of and what David was guilty of. There's not one sentence in there that references any of that. And that wasn't an oversight. What David understood or was made to understand was that the sin that was manifested, right, the murder of Uriah, the adultery with Bathsheba, the deceit. It wasn't the source of his problem. It was a manifestation of it, but it wasn't the source of his problem. It was why he wavered in the first place. Why he even gave into that temptation when he saw her and he didn't look away immediately or go out to the battlefield. I got to get out of here. It was the reason why he didn't do that, which was the source of his problem. James 1, 14 through 16. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Right? The sin was the adultery. The sin was the murder. But it was the temptation, the luring, the enticement that gave conception to that sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. What David knew to be true is what he desired to be restored was his joy and his gladness in God. Because if he was joyful and and glad in the Lord, he would not have been doing that. He would have stopped at least somewhere along the way. I mean, he did this for months, about a year almost, depending who you ask. We cannot take joy in God for granted. That is why we are commanded in Scripture over and over and over and over again to rejoice in God, to rejoice. If it was natural for us, it wouldn't be commanded. But not only is it commanded, it's commanded a lot. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. 
Philippians 3.1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. You are commanded to seek study, to seek fellowship, to seek activities and environments and ways of life that lead you to rejoicing in the Lord and in his word and in his teaching and in who he is and his church. You are commanded to do that. Because if you leave it to yourself, you can get in line with David. <clears throat> and this is, this, is the, this is the beautiful thing about this. When sin is finally done, glory, God restores everything. He makes all things new. We're glorified. We're in heaven. And it's just, I can go on and on with there, but I'll stop. So when, when sin is finally done, that is when God is most prevalent and most present in our lives. And not only that, we rejoice in him most then. We can rejoice in the Lord now, but we have a lot of things that impede us. Then nothing will impede us. We'll have such a dose of God that it'll be more than ever before in our lives. And because of that, sin will never return. Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make a covenant, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away, that's an action verb from God. I will not turn away. God is performing an action. Turn away from what, Lord? Turn away from doing, that's another action word, from God. God is doing something, doing good to them. I'm not going to stop doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. He's constantly putting the fear of God in our hearts. That they may not turn from me. So our salvation, the assurance of it, and the beauty of it is because God is constantly doing good to us. God will be so active in our lives because, and because we're liberated from this, this sinful flesh and these sinful desires that sinning will be an impossibility. We can't do it. It's impossible. If God's doing that much good to us, we're not sinning. Not because of us, but because of him. Jude 24, 25. Now him who is able, God is able, able to do something, action again, who is able to keep you from stumbling to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Both of these verses describe the efforts of God employs to keep us holy in his presence for all time. <clears throat> and recognizing this, David pleads with God. He is literally pleading with God. Even though he's already forgiven, he is pleading with God to keep him holy and restore him and renew him so that the joy of the Lord will be forever with him. And this leads us to our final need that David shares with us. The final need is the need to be used. Is the need to be used. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, 
and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then then will you delight in the right sacrifice, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The latter portion of this psalm, David shares what he desires after God grants him cleansing and restoration. Because he can't stop there. I'm being cleansed, I'm being restored. For what? This is what David shares. It's to be used. It's to be used. Being used by God is the product, the goal of being cleansed and restored. It is... Our being cleansed and restored by God is our highest joy, which is fully realized when we are used by God to reflect the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ by enjoying him and being in perfect fellowship with him in glory. I'm going to repeat that. It is our highest joy, being cleansed and restored by God. That is our highest joy, which that joy is fully realized when we are being used by God to reflect the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? when God is using us to do that, we're most joyful. That's our highest joy. And, then by, and how do we do that? By enjoying him. Us enjoying God is reflecting the glory of the gospel, and we're getting our highest joy. And it's being in perfect fellowship with him in glory. And it has to be in glory. That's why... Because we'll be perfect, God will be most present, he's there, he's just physically there, we can worship him, we can kneel before him, and our highest joy will come from that moment. So David shares two truths about being used by God, two, two truths. The first is the need to love others, the need to love others. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. There is a reason the the authors of the New Testament constantly, constantly remind us to love one another. And it started with Jesus, and it continues on. Love one another. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If Anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It is because God has so ordained the universe in such a way that in order to experience the fullness of God's love, we need to love one another. There's a need to love one another. How can you not love a person in which God indwells? Logically, it doesn't make sense. Theologically, it does not make sense. It's commanded to love one another. So it is natural for us to want to communicate our cleansed and restored lives. We're cleansed, we're restored. It's natural for us to want to communicate that by loving others. And the other side of this truth that David shares with us is the need to worship God. 
the need to worship God. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. There is a consummate joy in expressing ourselves. We need to express ourselves. I challenge you to look at your life and find a moment where you want to express yourselves and stop yourself. It's hard. You get, you get one of these going on. You want to express yourself. And I think C.S. Lewis, he, he does it better than I can ever say. And this is what he says in his Reflections of the Psalms. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Stotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. To enjoy him. The sign of a healthy relationship is when praise flows freely. That is why in the 1552 common book of prayer, in the wedding ceremony, the groom says to his bride, with this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Therefore, David's desire after his brokenness is that the relationship with God is made new, it's cleansed, it's restored, and it's used. Because if it is used, he may partake in the joy of the Lord. You're missing the joy of the Lord? Are you doing anything? Are you being used by God in some way? I love it when God gives me a divine appointment. Time escapes me. It just completely escapes me. Even if I'm locked in a car wash, it just escapes me. I love it. There's a, there's a joy in being used by God. we need to have God use us for the good of one another in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what can we learn from David's angst? What can we learn from all this? Well, the first one I want to share with you in our application is meditate on God's word. Meditate on God's word. It's one I've used before, but it never gets old. David would have never been convicted unto repentance the way he was if he had not had the word of God. I I can't get into it now, but if you read the psalm, he knew the law. He knew it well. And he used the language of the law in his repentant psalm and prayer towards God. You need to know it. You're not going to feel the weight and guilt of your sin. You're not going to be urged into repentance if you don't know the gravity of what you're doing, at least to a certain extent. 
You need to meditate on God's word. Really come to understand the depth of God's word. How do you expect to know God if you don't treat his word as worthy of your highest study, your highest enjoyment, your highest time? Meditate on God's word. Get a devotional. Get a devotional Bible. Get whatever you want. There's free ones online. Constantly put in front of your face every single day an aspect of God's word. And take your time. Slow down. Examine what is in there. You know how many sermons have been preached since this Bible has been made? And it continues. There's a lot in there. I encourage you and I urge you to do that. Second, recognize your lack of holiness. Something I sure, I, I'm sure David hoped he'd done. By constantly meditating on God's word, what we become confronted with time and time and time and time and time and time again is how many ways our sinful hearts fall short of the holiness of God. And what the practical application for that, and recognizing that you're not God, that you're not all perfect, that you're not all holy, no matter how long you've been in church, no matter what ministries you've been involved in, no matter what gifts God has given to you, the acknowledgement that you are not as holy as you think you are is going to save you from a lot of things. Or it's going to urge you to repentance. Those gray areas in life, should I partake in this activity? Should I dress this way? Should I own these objects? Should I do this? You need to ask yourself, you know, am I holy enough to do these activities, to own these objects, to do this, that, or the third in a God-honoring way? Am I? Or will that object, will that activity, will those things potentially lead me away from God and away from Christ. That's what we need to be doing. That's why you need to meditate on the word. And that's why you need to constantly preach to yourself that though we're God's saints, we're not perfect yet. And lastly, cherish and rejoice in God's restoration. Cherish and rejoice in God's restoration. The beautiful thing is that even when we make mistakes, even when we fall short, Proverbs 3.12 David's son wrote this. For the Lord reproves whom he loves. And as a father, the son in whom he delights. God loves David. Jesus was called the son of David. That's an honor for David. Right? Despite his sin, God was showing him love and publicly humiliating him. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly and gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants, many of them that may have given their lives or were broken or have gone through difficulty. Um, We even think of our Lord Jesus Christ who went through the most severe and the most weighty of that and the fact that we can hold a Bible in our hands, pages of of Scripture between two covers and know that you have given us such a precious truth. I pray now, Lord, for this congregation. I pray for this church. I pray for everyone that's here. I pray for those that are of us, our membership that are not here. And I just pray, Lord, that you take your word and you use it 
to pierce our hearts in such a way that we look towards you, we seek you, we pursue you, and we apply so much of the wonderful truths of this scripture so that when we go out into this world and we go out into our families and we, wherever we are, Lord, that our light shines, the light that you gave us, because prior to that we loved the darkness and hated the light. Father, I thank you and I lift you up because you are the only one that deserves it, Father. And I thank you and pray to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.